Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, a podcast about movies to make you feel good on Christmas or your money back. Guaranteed. No exceptions. <laughs> I am your host, Tyler Hannon, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Kayla St. Ange. Hello. Kayla, you seem to be enjoying my introduction. Is it because of the accuracy? Some lofty promises <laughs> is what that is. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about the uh, family-friendly, great time, happiness, very seasonal. Uh, but before we get to that... The film is called Happiness, yes. just to clarify. The, the, uh, the film is called Happiness and truly it embodies happiness uh, more than any other film I've ever seen. Um, but we'll dive into the accuracy of that statement later. First... We have to talk about some movies we watched recently. That is true. And we're going to start with another one that brought us nothing but pure joy and happiness. Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. just in case probably a spoiler warning probably just skip ahead five minutes if you haven't seen it yet right i know it's pretty new i'm not gonna try to get too into spoilers but let's be real it's, like it might happen it's probably gonna happen i got a meme that i have to get off my chest out loud so is, is it the fact that there was a trailer for the mandalorian before or, i'm sorry the trailer for the baby yoda show before star wars <laughs> and yet no baby yoda okay first of all yeah let's get into this you were furious so, i'm surprised you didn't storm out all right first of all let me set the stage for you guys we went to see star wars episode 9 at 7 p.m on a sunday night a normal time you might think kayla that's not late at all however for context i had been awake since two in the morning because i had to work at 4 a.m so i didn't have time to take a nap in between getting out of work and going to this movie like i thought i was going to and the coffee that i drank only made my tummy upset and it didn't wake me up at all so (laughs) we get there And we walk into the theater and Ben's like, don't worry, babe, I got the IMAX tickets. And we walk in and realize that the IMAX theater doesn't have recliners. You you always forget that before you walk in. one. (laughs) No recliner. (laughs) Strike. J.J. Abrams, what the fuck? (laughs) That's personally J.J. Abrams' fault. Strike two, there is a trailer for The Mandalorian in IMAX. In IMAX. And there was no Baby Yoda in the whole trailer. It's been out, okay? There's no spoilers about Baby Yoda. Everybody knows about Baby Yoda. You couldn't just for one second just take the trailer back and splice in one two-second shot of Baby Yoda with his fucking bone broth because all I want is to see Baby Yoda on the IMAX screen and I was robbed of this experience by Disney. I mean, if cats can send out a new version of the movie with different effects a day after it comes out, Star Wars, you can make a new trailer. Patch it in! If anything, (laughs) it should have nothing but Baby Yoda if you actually want people to, as soon as they get home, log on to Disney Plus and watch some Baby Yoda My number one complaint is that there's not enough Baby Yoda. Not enough. The Mandalorian. So don't lie to me about what the show is about in your trailer. <laughs> I want to see him being small with his little cloak, 
reaching out his little hand, having his big eyes. Like this Kayla, is the, this is what the people want. Now, Kayla, imagine Baby Yoda standing there with his bone broth, like snug in his little cloak thing, but on a giant IMAX screen. I know it was the only thing I wanted, and it was denied me. So. That was strike two. Yeah, we stormed out. That's our review. <laughs> we actually didn't even watch them. No, I'm just That's kidding. our review. <laughs> Star Wars episode nine, garbage. The Rise no of Skywalker baby. was me floating on the fuck out of that. Strike three, there was no Baby Yoda in episode nine. I know that that doesn't make sense canonically, but like, why can't I just have that? I mean, it could. They can make it. As J.J. Abrams proved, they can like force anything in the canon. They can just do whatever they, really they want, want I guess. I, if, if they can just basically remove a character whole cloth from a movie, even though she was a major factor in the previous one why not add a character whole clue oh wait they also did that but we'll get to that here's the deal all right so we we loved it that's the vibe here's the thing as we all know uh if you've been listening to this podcast for the time that it has existed i have never been a great lover of star wars i think that it has an important place in film history And you can't deny that. I think that plot-wise, almost every Star Wars is bad. (laughs) And that event, like, at the end of the day, Star Wars is a fun space opera for children. And this movie does technically succeed at being a fun space opera for children, I guess. (laughs) There was really no way that we could come back from literally my favorite director taking something that I normally have pretty medium feelings about and making it something that I really care about. I don't think that there was ever going to be like an upswing from The Last Jedi for me, but I wasn't expecting to be so whelmed. Right. And again, like it wasn't bad. Okay. That's actually, okay. It was parts of it were pretty bad, but like it was just Tyler. (laughs) I mean, it was take it away. I mean, I leaned over to you after, I don't know, the first 45 minutes or so, just whispered, this movie is so aggressive. Yeah. I do not envy the task of making this movie because it seemed pretty impossible even before considering Carrie Fisher died and this was supposed to be like her movie in God, the way I that the previous two were. That we had that movie. Right. <laughs> so like, w- like, yes, it is an impossible task. That said, some... Pretty baffling choices. And there are some which I can understand the appeal of wanting to do that. But I guess this is where we're getting to spoilers. Yeah, here's my my number one issue with it. Is that it's cynical in a super weird way that I don't think Star Wars ever has been. Even at its worst. Because I very much got the feeling that despite being an executive producer, having plot sign off, and being involved with literally every creative step for The Last Jedi, Mm -hmm. seemed to think that to fix the wrongs of a perfectly amazing movie and probably the best Star Wars movie ever made... That he had to take a bunch of digs at every part of The Last Jedi and retcon most of them in the film. Like, there's just a lot of little things. Like, for instance, the stupid little droid who's not BB-8, whose name I don't even know. Dio. Yeah, he's not my friend. I've made that very clear. Aww. They tried to make that my friend, and that's not my friend. Um, is voiced by J.J. Abrams. And the first thing that happens is Ray's like, oh, my God, you've been so mistreated. Don't worry. You're with us now. Like, okay, Fine. And then there's another line where they're like, what if we get some Holdo stuff and just like go light warp or whatever mm-hmm. and pose like, that was, uh, we can't do that. That was right. ridiculous. Like, you know, there's just the like lightsaber. little stuff like right. that where it's like, 
okay, we get it. Even though you were literally involved with every step of the process, you now feel like you have to bend over backwards to coddle incels on Reddit who care too much about Star Wars. And I guess here's my thing is even with like the rosiest possible assumptions, like assuming that Ryan Johnson is trying to have some irreverent fun the way that Ryan Johnson or that J.J. Abrams is trying to have some irreverent fun the same way like Ryan Johnson did at moments in his movie, assuming that he just legitimately thought this was the best place for the movie to go and was not actively trying to retcon what Ryan Johnson did, even assuming all that it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to me when you're trying to land this, not only this trilogy, but apparently the whole Skywalker saga, they were very like concerned with the whole nine movie thing. Listen, as we all know, they're never going to make a Star Wars movie again because Disney hates money. And like even like <laughs> even if like you don't like the decisions made in the eighth movie, you're really putting yourself in the hole by having to spend the first like 45 minutes to an hour of this movie just resetting everything to get it to the point that you want where you want the series to end. Like... It sucks that maybe that's where you want to go and you don't get to do that because you didn't do the second movie well, or you didn't like the second but movie. But it also just drives me fucking bonkers. But the second movie exists. Like you can't, it exists. It, you got to work from the assumption that this movie exists. But it's also just to pretend that he wasn't involved with that and that his vision was wrested away from him. Like he wasn't on set and helping with the script and having conversations about where the plot should go. That is what drives me nuts is that it seems very much like a like shaking the hand only to like turn around and stab you in the back kind of situation between the two of them. And like I know that Ryan Johnson is like a very classy person and has just been ignoring all of this and he's a much better person than I would be because I would be out for blood if I was being treated by JJ Abrams the way that he's being treated. And it just is so frustrating because it's like the entire point of some of these decisions were that so much of Star Wars is steeped in this lore that like who you are matters so much like it's your destiny it's your fate you can't escape these things and what was special about Rey and the last Jedi and all of this stuff and what's kind of special and makes more sense in this era is the feeling of like anybody can do this like Mm -hmm. you have the power to step up and create change where you want to see it regardless of where you're from who you're related to it's a very modern tale like i can understand in the 70s that like the the nuclear family and your bloodline and all of these things were something that was massively important to us culturally as a country but that just isn't the thing now Mm -hmm. and i think if you take the last jedi and knives out as kind of companion pieces of like coming off of this monolith to go back to creating something that you have entire control over it speaks volumes to me that the first thing he chose to do was make a whodunit in which like the nobody immigrant is the hero of the story against like rich capitalists that is the decision that bothers me the most is to be like haha just kidding actually she's also secretly somebody who has a special last name and it just falls so flat because once you've already established all of these things and when you're trying to like blow it out into this huge like He's the Skywalker or a soul. Like, and this is the other thing. <laughs> like, who is supposed to be the Skywalker that's rising? Because she's not a Skywalker. She, I mean, to be very clear, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She claims the name Skywalker at the end. I know, but it's stupid. And like, yes. Kylo Ren, not technically. Uh, he's Ky- a Skywalker. Like, his mom is a Skywalker. He's a solo, though. Like, that's how that works. <laughs> like, unless Star <laughs> well, Wars is suddenly. Uh, Kayla, very patriarchal. Well, yeah, you know? if Star Wars is suddenly a matriarchal society, great. He's a Skywalker, but that's not like a He's the last of the canon. Skywalker bloodline. I guess. If you want to be technical. And if we really, really, really want to go into the spoiler territory. 
As we all know, Mm -hmm. my favorite kind of character is an angsty, sad boy who's kind of bad, but then redeems himself. From Avatar's Prince Zuko Mm -hmm. to like any sad, like I I just- To Avatar's Sam Worthington. No, (laughs) I don't know what it is. I just like a guy who is a conflicted villain Mm -hmm. and he's kind of sad and then he becomes good. I don't know what it is. That is the kind of male character that and, I am. I mean, going off of the reaction of the internet, like, you're not alone. I know. And it's probably the most basic thing about me, to be perfectly honest. And here's the thing. I love Kylo Ren, and I've loved him since the first movie. And I'm, lit- I'm like, literally outing myself right now. But, like, I don't even hate the decision to have, like, Ray and Ben be a thing. I really – I don't hate that. And I feel like – I actually feel like that kiss is maybe the only actually emotionally earned part of the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Forget <laughs> it. Like, a lot of this movie gets away from it. But, like, throughout the trilogy overall, like, that relationship is the most fleshed out. And I know that there's a lot of discourse around it. And I'm you are free to disagree with me. I fully get why anybody would not like this character or this dynamic or anything I don't know what to tell you. I like it. And I think that it works. <laughs> it and just it's not does. like he gets to like be king of the, like, like, but, like the good king. But like, here's the deal. Okay. Because I read a thread on Twitter that was like, oh, y'all, no. he was supposed to be alive at the end because again, spoiler, oh, yeah, spoiler, they, like, spoiler he yeah. dies. Yeah, yeah. But like, it just doesn't make sense for him to die. And it does anything that happens after that also doesn't make sense. Cause I don't buy for one second that Leia's like, ah, yes, my son who I wasted my last moments on this earth reaching out to to touch and bring him back to the side of light is dead now i can be at peace that doesn't make sense there's also the whole thing where like she knew from the beginning the lightsaber thing remember yeah why would she give up jedi training because her son was gonna die knows that he'll be the death of her and yet like and then some real like omniscient characters letting things happen and there was also ben didn't bring that up it's like he told me he didn't like we talked about it i was gonna say he just told me the other day like with what with uh dr manhattan it's one of his biggest pet peeves is like that's just the way it must be the time i hate it yeah i I hate that too because it's like no it's a fucking story for children it can be however it should like there's no having a lightsaber cool they had to, they had to sweat to get her that lightsaber. Oh my god! Don't even. I, that's a whole other thing that doesn't make sense to me. But like, there were also a whole bunch of leaks that all turned out to be true, except yeah. for the ending with Ben and Ray on Tatooine, which means that it feels to me like they were like, "Ha ha, we got you." But like, I just they the, changed a lot of stuff on the go, which is like yeah. often happens in Star Wars. But I don't. It's just one of those things where it's like I think that a lot of series do benefit from not having a set roadmap however i think if you're trying to stick the landing of a 40 year old saga you should at least have like some goal posts like, you know you shouldn't be writing each movie in a vacuum on right. its own and then being like when this is over we'll figure out where the next right. one this will is go. where we're like well i love the last jedi we love the last jedi. i even love the force awakens i'm not right. gonna lie right. i had a really good time with that movie and yeah. it shocked me how but much like, i like if it. you're gonna be so so concerned with the nine movie saga and bringing everything in and all that like don't let Ryan Johnson make whatever movie he wants. Just let J.J. Abrams do the whole fucking thing. If right. that's like, I, I don't or, think that it makes sense to have a different director or in like the middle. Ryan, once Ryan, look, as I was saying, once Ryan Johnson makes The Last Jedi, you can't go back. It's the, done. They work really hard to go back, and it's part of why this movie is so complicated. Rose Tico. 
I okay. cannot believe this. So, like, like, the, like, that's the thing. It's like, all the decisions they make, I think it was a terrible idea to, like, basically retcon or, like, to s- aggressively set up a sequel to the first movie and be like, our buddies are three buddies that we always started with. These are all we care about. And also the original character. Like, whatever. Um, I can, like, the raised parentage and all that stuff. Like, I can see, even if I disagree, the logic with going to that. Uh, why did J.J. Abrams push Kelly Marie Tran off an actual cliff. Like, Like, absolutely ridiculous. And on top of that, so, like, there's the Rose thing, there's the aggressively giving Finn and Poe girlfriends, especially when Finn technically had a girlfriend because Rose was his girlfriend for a minute. Like, what we just forgot about that. And then, of all the things, like, if you're going to be like, oh, they chose to be nobody and they left you here, like... It's still bad to sell your child <sighs> to metal scrappers on Jakku, just, regardless of your intentions that's just with all, that. Like that fucking tough. Like dude. that is that's real a real tough. bad look for her parents to be like, we are good, we're just leaving you here so Palpatine can't get you. You're gonna have a terrible life. Like it it would be better for them to be like drunk scrap traders who were just like bye bitch you know like Fucking. it doesn't make it better it actually makes it actively worse because it just makes them straight up bad parents who are terrible people and also Jodie Comer wasted in that cameo are you fucking kidding me i don't know i guess i have a lot more strong feelings about this than i thought but like i guess my main like so like every like for the most part everything like i can get past i resigned myself to last jedi retconning to a certain extent it was way more aggressive than i thought it was gonna be jj clearly just wanted to do a force awakens sequel and ignored everything he could except for like the force facetiming he even gave her back her old outfit in this movie where he is so slavishly devoted to giving all of his characters from The Force Awakens, like, stuff to do, and all the original trilogy people stuff to do, including, like, a lot of C-3PO, which I enjoyed, but was a lot. When you're so slavishly devoted to, like, giving all of those existing characters mm-hmm. time at the expense of other existing characters, you cannot also bring in your fucking buddies in brand new roles that do not matter and all they do is soak up lines that Kelly Marie Tran, like I should, Mas Rose Hannah, Tico, yeah. or like Maz Kanata, or whatever Billy Lord's character is. Like, yeah, Billy Lord. Like, <laughs> like any of those characters who you squeeze in nonsense. Like, just, it's also I just love Dominic Monaghan. Yeah. What the fuck is he doing in this movie having so many lines? It's also just frustrating because it's like Rose is like, I have to stay here. And it's like, why? Don't understand why she has to stay there. And they I don't fucking know. Jar Jar Bingster, dude. We should we should get off of this tangent because I feel like we could go on forever. Um, there were things we enjoyed. There were so like it is at the end of the day a fun Star Wars movie mm. because just like there's lightsaber fights and stuff. Um, because good I've been actors, always, we do like most of the characters. yeah. All of, like honestly, they're doing their best. Like every single one of the lead characters, like Daisy Ridley, um, Oscar Isaac, obviously John Boyega, Adam Driver. Like they're doing. A really good job with what they have. And, at, like, Adam Driver's shoulders must be so sore from just, like, carrying this trilogy with his expressive little eyes and his stupid face that I love for some reason. Ouch. Uh, but, yeah. So, I mean. Also, like, I know you said, like, giving Finn and Bo girlfriends, but, like. Aggressively. Imagining, like. This movie also makes canon that Oscar Isaac and Carrie Russell fucked, which I, I am fully behind. I mean, I guess I'm okay with that, but at the end of the day, like, 
Finn and Poe are space husbands. They just are. This movie goes full. So, sp- I don't know if J.J. Abrams knew, but like, there's some he gay ended up on it's space thruple. Yeah, space thruple. And you know like, what? I fully support that. I wish it had been no. space quadruple because again, I fully believe that Ben Solo should have been alive because it's kind of his redemption story that he doesn't then get to like see the fruits of at all, <laughs> which is a big sad. But um, I don't know. In conclusion, space husbands are real, and mm. Raylos can have a little kiss as a snack. Anyways, on the Baby Yoda. Um. <laughs> and I think that, like, it's just disappointing to have been pretty set in my ways of not being a Star Wars fan and being okay with that. Yeah. But then to be dragged out and right. be like, maybe I am a Star Wars fan. Maybe I am enjoying this. Like, maybe this is, like, it for me. Like, the mm. new era and all of these things. And then it's like, just kidding. We fucking blew yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know. It just it doesn't stick the landing for me. The lightsaber fights are cool. I'm hoping... There's a lot of a uh, Raylo conspiracy theory that there might be a movie about Ray going into the other world to like bring him back because now because they're a fu- they're a fucking dyad. That's the whole point. Oh yeah, which is brand new to this movie and like I think kind of speaks for itself. Like I that's not one of the things I'm totally bent out of shape about. I think it like I the it's movie just, is not clear on the specifics, it's but just like bad writing. Like, it's just bad. There's writing. too much. There's so much and like even considering the circumstances, it did not have to be this much. Um, but. Before we get any further into it, let's just say that that is all of our thoughts on it. I hope that you had a better time at Star Wars than I did. I hope that if you really liked that if Star Wars is like your bread and butter, that this was what you wanted. Because, like, again, I never want anyone to have a bad time at a movie, and and I certainly don't. Even with the choices we just lambasted and disagree with, again, I see the appeal in most, most most of them. In almost some of them. The Rose Tico thing's unforgivable. Rose Tico and Ben Solo dying unforgivable, yes. <laughs> so moving on, moving we on. are currently recording on Christmas Eve because nothing says Christmas like an uncomfortable Todd Salons movie. So I think we're going to take this time to talk about some Christmas movies that we've watched recently. Oh, Tyler? Uh, so I'm going to talk about everybody's favorite new Christmas movie, uh, Black Christmas 2019. Directed by Sophia Call and uh, written by April Wolf. Helena hasn't gotten home yet. If I were missing, I'd want you to unleash the bloodhounds and track me down. She was at DKO last night. Still creating problems, huh, right? Hello? Hello? I'm worried that something bad happened. It's winter break. Could just be a delay of some sort. Snow. My friend is missing. Everybody loves it. We all agree. It's a very good and inventive slasher. Um, I think I haven't seen it yet. So disclaimer, I have no opinion yet. Right. And like, totally like, I do not, I do not expect you to like it as much as me because again, most people like this movie less than I do. Yeah. uh, Letterboxd Lucy. Mostly for, mostly for the wrong fucking reasons. Like I just, (laughs) I'm just saying I've read through many of them. Most of the reasoning is bad. This movie, uh, I'm a big fan of Sophia to call. I like the work of April Wolf. I'm not a completist at all, but I do think she is very smart. And I know her well enough, and I think this movie shows that she is someone who really loves genre movies, and she went and she really likes when genre movies just get weird and go for it. And especially the third act of this movie, I'm totally on board for it, and I really like the swing it takes. And I think it's really telling that on her own podcast, she guessed it, quote-unquote, 
on it. Well, she was like someone else hosted it. And she talked about the John Carpenter movie, Prince of Darkness, another movie that's just like weird and wild and goes for it. Um, I, I don't think you have to have that mentality to enjoy the movie, but I do mm-hmm. think it informs it a lot. Like this is a person who is very smart, who like knows her stuff. It is not a mo- subtle movie, but also like, ah, that's a subtlety, you know? It's, is like, a slasher movie ever a subtle movie is right. the other question. Um, it is like an overtly feminist movie. I just think, I think it does have, even despite the PG-13 rating that some people wrung their hands about, I think it has some legitimate scares, some really thrilling sequences. I think it is often very clever, even if sometimes it is very on the nose. And I also like, so I really like Sophia Takal as director. I think mm-hmm. she's really interesting. I think she takes, has an interesting perspective. And I really like how she films things. I like just the way she, like, something about the way that she films people's faces and captures their emotions, especially like subtle movements. I think she's really talented. I think she does a lot with this. It's I, w- not that I wouldn't serious. say it's a gr- it's it's not a great movie. And I just think. Y'all, it's just a good, fun time. And anybody, like, I I just found a lot of the dunking very performative. And I, fi- I find a lot of the discussion about how lacking in subtlety it is, especially when it involves, like, it was... Is this coming from men? Not just men, because a lot but, of people, like, but the worst takes that... Let's just say, <laughs> Kayla, if you, if you looked up Black Christmas reviews, you would have even just negative Black Christmas reviews, you would have like a 95% success rate picking out the genders of Spectrum, but like the gender of whoever wrote it. Yeah. The men, like most of the reviews written by men I read are just not all, but mostly bad dunking dismissals. And most of the ones from women are like much more nuanced. That doesn't mean they liked it more, but they just had a more nuanced if approach If you can to have it. a reason to explain to me why you don't like something, I will listen right. whenever. If it's literally just like I straight up didn't like it and thought it was stupid, I don't find that to be like a worthwhile use of my time to read. Like you're free to have that People opinion, just, don't get like, me wrong. Just not be precious about it because it's not like this original is anything more than like a cult like a feminist cult classic yes but like let's not act like y'all are watching black christmas every year and having like a giant essay written about it it's fine right like you can just sometimes horror movies are just fun slasher whatever like not everything and this is a very like this is a remake that goes in a very different direction it is not there are many arguments against remakes, some of them valid, but a lot of times we default to them and they're often conflicting. Like, why bother remaking the movie if you're just going to make the same movie? But then when it's very different, it's like, why would you even call this Black Christmas? And like, that's one I saw this, a lot is like, it's so this, different. Why this would is you call it Black argument, Christmas? Yeah. And it's just, I think those are like technical, arbitrary things that people get hung up on and use as like the brunt force of their reviews. And I think it's kind of dishonest and unfair. It's like the same thing as when people talk about, I don't know, shit like tonal inconsistency. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what do you think that means? Yes. And I just think that we live in a world that is unfortunately a lot of our cinema is remakes and reboots and whatever. And I think that the only way in which we can move forward with film criticism and with even just like amateur film like reviewing and whatnot is if we are treating these films as if they are their own thing instead of constantly comparing them because otherwise we're all just going to be miserable all the time because every other movie that comes out – not even every other – like 
80% of all movies that come out right now are based on the intellectual property of something else. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. We've talked about this at length before. Mm. But I think that if we want to still try to carve out like our own identity as like a generation watching these films and consuming them, we should be able to talk about them based on their own merits instead of being slavishly devoted to the past. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's wow. very deep for Black Christmas remake, but I, just, I I have not addressed all the complaints. I don't want to focus too much on the complaints. I just think like it is a perfectly fine and fun and good movie that I think is effective enough. Mm. I just Sophia's call undefeated. Carry on. <laughs> also, like, it's very interesting seeing the dancing, like, when people dance on the box office failure of a movie from the other side. It's really, it was like, oh, that's uh, kind of gross and fucked up. I and mean, also, it's a like, Blumhouse movie. It got it's made, made for $4. More. Like, I'm probably, it probably made back quadruple its budget already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's so that. That's uh, my uh, scattered defense of Black Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> we are on it today. It's Christmas and. We are having some feelings. Christmas Eve bash. Come one, come all. Boom. He's gonna break up with me. He would have to be the dumbest human being on earth to do that. Like, dumber than the people who blow on ice cream before they eat it. That girl and I have a thing. Have you ever been with someone and you stay up until like 4 a.m. just talking about everything and you're just like, I can't believe I get to exist at the same time as you? No. But, like, I'm really happy for you. Um, a movie that I watched recently for Christmas that has nothing to do with literally any of this mm. is the Netflix original rom-com Let It Snow. Oh, that's the one you decided on. Yes, I decided on that one because I, I also recently rewatched uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which I found actually held up surprisingly well, like in terms of not being problematic, really outside of Chevy Chase, like just being a terrible person in real life. Um, but probably don't need to give like minutes of airtime to his movie <laughs> so the netflix uh christmas movie let it snow mm. has everybody's fave kiernan chipka and yeah. some other new like buzzy teens Hell well they're yeah. not i don't think they're, they're the teens. i don't think they're actually teens they're probably like early 20s but you know what i mean and it's kind of like a vignette like everybody is having their own Christmas story and they're kind of intersecting here and there and all these characters will like eventually. Happiness. Yeah, kind of actually it, in that way. Yes, they are similar movies in only that way. It's like it's like a, these one, these movies, they're like non-anthology anthologies where they're like yes. kind of interwoven, but many separate stories. Yeah. Go on. And Sorry. so this movie is based on a, a con, like a, a novel by everybody's fave john green maureen johnson and another prominent ya author whose name i'm blanking on right now which also explained to me why i vibed with it (laughs) to be honest it's about these teens living in a town trying to go about their day deal with their problems and it was just a good light christmas popcorn movie like it was exactly what i wanted uh, like on my first day of my christmas break just Chilling on the couch, Kiernan Shipka being cool as always as like a cool punk girl in a Sonic Youth t-shirt. My only complaint is that there is a lesbian subplot of this movie that Kiernan Shipka is not involved in, despite all of the signals (laughs) her character gives off in mode of speaking and mode of dressing that she should in fact be a lesbian. Mm. But like 
that is another plus for the movie is that it has actually a really nice lesbian storyline that I enjoyed and was pleasantly surprised by. Um, a really cute uh, interracial couple story. Um, one boring white people story. It had something for everybody. A fun party. I was going to say, I looked up IMDb when you yeah. mentioned the people. Shamik Moore um, is Miles Morales. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, one of the guys from Spider-Man is also in it. Oh, um, the spider, the other Spider-Man. The oh. live, the Marvel live action Spider-Man. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. there's a, I have to differentiate which Spider-Man we're talking about because the there's world is a whole is a, Spider-Verse. The world is a nightmare. Um, but yeah, so I guess I don't have a lot to say about it. It's one of those things where it's like you're going to watch it or you're not. But if you... Are you sure you don't want to argue about it? Like, I don't. I actually have nothing to argue about because it's literally just pleasantly benign and good. <laughs> and if you are looking for something quick to put on that will be good for like your generally liberal family mm-hmm. or friends in the background at Christmas. I mean, this is going to come out shortly after Christmas. But like, if you want to hold on to the if Christmas spirit. If you're still in the feeling, go yeah. for it. Oh, my stone I mean, I celebrate Halloween till like mid-November, so. I mean, that's how you do. You people must be out there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm sure they are. So yeah, that would be my recently watched recommendation for you is that movie. And also, Kieran Shipka, you can call me literally whenever. I'm free all the time. I gotta say, Kayla, after, like, uh, getting really worked up about the last two movies, that was very nice. Yeah, I like to bring it home so that nobody just, like, immediately turns it off. (laughs) (laughs) When they get 30 minutes into the podcast and we're still just yelling. So for more light holiday fare, we're gonna move to our main event, which is the 1998 Todd Salon's film, Happiness. You want a divorce? Did I use the word divorce? You said that you didn't. Did I use the word divorce? Divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. Hello, bud. How are you? I am fine. How are you? Do you like men? It's not so simple. Are you lesbian? No. It's all right. I like lesbian. I'm a passionate woman. Yeah. But I hate sex. We who have everything will joy. And what about our music career? I don't know, but don't hold your breath. I know that I don't dare to end my search for happiness. Happiness, what are you? I haven't got a clue. Happiness, why do you have to stay so far away from me? So, Kayla happiness yeah um i guess so for some context this Mm. was our number one patron landon de fever's pick for which movie he wanted us to cover so thank you landon for uh giving us money and choosing a really interesting movie for us to talk about actually yeah Um, he giving free promotion to our number one patron but (laughs) for ten dollars you too can choose a movie and if you're nearby watch it with us uh, so Landon had this project this year We had where he picked 100 movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just shared this on Letterboxd today, which is why it's also top of mind. He picked 100 movies he'd never seen and then watched those throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And he actually did it, which is 60, 70% more effective than I ever am with watch lists. So kudos. Um, and then he had, like, he shared his top 10 today, just Christmas mm-hmm. Eve, I believe. I believe you yes. shared it today, not I believe it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> Is it? Uh, and one of his, this was one of his top ten movies. Yes. So like he like had newly found this this year, mm-hmm. and that is part of why he wanted us to watch it. Yeah, so some background on this, because I feel like this is maybe a movie that our general audience might not be super familiar with. Todd Salons is an American filmmaker who specializes in the deeply uncomfortable. 
And I'm not even sure that he means for it to be deeply uncomfortable because after reading a lot of interviews with him, I'm actually like kind of impressed with him as a person, which is not what I was expecting, especially because as we were watching this movie, I felt very much that it was kind of of a kind with election and that Alexander Payne sort of cynicism. And after reflecting on the movie and also reading about his intentions for the movie, I don't quite agree with that. So Happiness is a movie that is, again, this kind of like paths crossing vignettes of different characters who are all interconnected in different ways. Like they're not technically all on the same page, but they all have to interact with each other at some point. And we're kind of like, you kind of are just plopped down into this week of this community. <laughs> and... um they're not great people, really, any of them, from the, like, mildly annoying to the absolute reprehensive. And the the thing that connects them all is that they're searching for the titular happiness. And I don't think any of them find it. Uh, <laughs> one character does, to comedic effect, at the very end. Yes. And <laughs> they're so... All, they have a lot of trouble along the way. It's it's hard to describe this movie because it is so strange, I guess, and so parts of it are so deeply uncomfortable. But your cast of characters involves Philip Seymour Hoffman as a man who wants to get together with a woman who lives in his same apartment, but she is, like, so beautiful and unattainable, and he is so gross and whatever, and so he gets off, literally, by prank-calling women and masturbating. Right. And that's, you have, That's how he cha- channels, like, the angst from that, which... Yes. And you have a, a woman who is searching for happiness in a relationship, not understanding that, like, you can't find happiness in other people, and you have... Mm-hmm. Her sister, who is like a perfect suburban mom who has it all, but then her husband is literally a pedophile yeah. secretly. So like there's just – there's all of these people and they are searching for connection and searching for happiness in the wrong ways, in straight up transgressive ways. And it is definitely an experience to see it. And I I feel like it is good that I knew less about it when we started to watch it. And I think – also that it's good that I did some research on like what the point of it was because on its own, it is a baffling and confusing experience. <laughs> this movie is a great, it is like maybe one of the best cases I've seen for you have, you do have to actually watch the movie because if you were to just list this plot off to someone, it would I sound mean, probably IMDb, terrible. IMDb has it, so I can actually do that now Ooh. that I'm thinking about it, yes. because that is the IMDb plot description yeah. is just listing the events of this movie, mm-hmm. and they're bad, Yeah, is, is what it is. <laughs> like, Let's see. So here we go. Mm-hmm. A woman breaks up with her boyfriend. He thinks it's because he's fat. A man is unable to tell her next door neighbor he finds her sexually attractive. An old couple wants to split up, but they don't want to get a divorce. A therapist masturbates to teen magazines. An 11-year-old kid is insecure about the fact that he hasn't come yet. Office workers try to recall the face of a co-worker who recently died. A woman is sure she has everything she could ever want. The lives of these individuals intertwine as they go about their lives in their own unique ways, engaging in acts society as a whole might find disturbing in a desperate search for human connection." And again, that all sounds weird and gross. And the movie is weird and gross. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't hate watching it. 
which is like, I can't say that I liked watching it, but I feel that it is legitimately an interesting and challenging piece of art. And I feel that there was a lot of thought and soul that went into writing this and in what what Salons was trying to convey, I guess. So Tyler, I'm interested in what your thought was on this because you had never seen a Todd Salons movie and I had randomly seen another one when I was in high school. So I'm just curious, like your kind of thoughts on this, like especially after, because we've had a week or so to ruminate on it because right after I think we were like, (laughs) like what is this? I mean, you you gotta sit with it a bit. Yeah. Um, So... I mean, I have talked about how I love love to suffer movies, and I often enjoy being uncomfortable. This movie, I guess I came away and feeling more strongly about this, that it is a very good and impressive movie, if only for accomplishing what it accomplishes and like bal- the balancing act that it achieves. And it kind of it's kind of a roller coaster ride throughout as I'm watching the movie, as more things happen, trying to balance do I th- like is this movie just about discomfort and the humor in that? Is this just about human depravity? What is he trying to get at here? And by the end, like it ends on like kind of a joke, which is pretty fitting, but I do find it to be a very fascinating and I'd have to imagine impossible, like nearly impossible to create balance of like, Diving into, like, acknowledging human depravity and human weakness, but with a, without any judgment and with, like, a healthy amount of empathy, but... But never in a way that is wrong, I guess, because right. we're literally never with, dishonest, like, a Never dishonest, never sanding yeah. off the edges, like, being honest about, like, people being terrible, but also people just trying to do their best. Yeah. And, but most often being terrible when they try to just, like be a little selfish. Uh. So having done a, a bit of research on this, because when, when Landon was here and we finished it, he kind of asked what my initial thoughts were. And <laughs> I I was still, I had a couple of threads that I was working on throughout the movie that ended up not really being how I felt about the movie as a whole. Because I think at the end of the day, this is a movie about the inherent meanness of humanity and the ways in which we are struggling for connection. And in the 90s, I think that the particular struggle that we now know and live with every day was very fresh and very new because 1998, you're looking at the dawn of the internet. You're looking at a time when people were kind of just starting to understand like, my sister can live on the opposite side of the country and we can talk to each other on the phone or we can email, but we're not together in the same place. And it's, again, the beginning of this isolation, but also kind of about the loss of community because as people, like, we don't have communities really anymore. And when I say community, I mean a group of people who you live near and who you see and who you interact with. And we've kind of replaced that with this idea that shared interests are a community and you can talk to somebody online about your favorite TV show or you can call somebody and, I don't know, you can talk on the phone with them about, like, how your day was. But it's not – you're still having this isolated experience of – logging onto your computer and typing or picking up the phone and dialing. You're not interacting with the people around you and you're not seeing them 
and it leads to kind of like a dehumanization and you end up alone and everybody around you is a question mark and I think that that is what this movie does a really good job of painting a picture of and I think that it makes more sense in retrospect because it's something that we're very familiar with and that we live with every day because we don't have that like we Mm -hmm. go to the office we go on the internet we are just like we're not I mean obviously this isn't a blanket statement because I'm sure there are people who are very involved in their local communities but as a whole as society like we have shifted away from that being like your main network of support is the people who live around you that you see and interact with every day Mm -hmm. and the way that Salons approaches these characters is that they are grappling for connection and they are all technically connected. They all tangentially know each other and yet have no idea what's going on in each other's lives. And they're constantly stumbling around each other, actively hurting each other, doing something wrong. But the way that he chooses to frame these characters who are like, honestly, most of them despicable, like bad people. I think that when you say that it's a compassionate but honest look at them, it's because what he's doing is looking at these characters as people and asking us to just think about them as people. Maybe not empathize, maybe not agree, right? but to understand that they are moving through this world and searching for something. And I think in the 90s, the reason that this was such a controversial film is that it was the era of cynicism and I don't care, man, whatever. Like, it was very much a generation that was also searching for something because you come out of the 70s and you see all of the people who were rebels and fighting for a cause are turning to corporate America for jobs and checks and sacrificing their morals for, like, their perfect house and their perfect yard and their lawn. And you have baby boomers who, you know, were born after the cusp of a great war, having really nothing to fight for their entire lives and either having the choice to, you know, join the youth in these protests in the 70s or to sit by the sideline and connect and like collect their pension and just kind of like live the comfortable life that was set up for them by the people who fought in these wars for them. And when you have people who are adults in the 90s, like you kind of see that vein running through the films that were popular then. Like, so you have like election, which to me, like as we talked about, I thought was an indictment of maybe like masculinity in the 90s. And I thought for a minute, maybe this film was trying to also say something about that. But like, as I started to really read interviews with Todd Salons and his thought process behind making this movie, I, I, I kind of came away from that thought because I don't think he's trying to say anything about any particular gender and it's one of those things where I really uh, am making an effort to try and not ascribe intent to directors who have no intent Mm -hmm. like how we talked about Under the Skin where where the director (laughs) it's like how we talked about Under the Skin where the director was like oh I never meant to make a feminist film like it wasn't about gender and yet we're over here giving him all of this credit and so I wanted to be really careful especially with a film like this that deals with such uncomfortable subject matter And what I came away from his interviews and his thought process is that, again, trying to view these people as human and understand that they're on the same journey that we're all on and they're just maybe going about it in a grosser way. Or not even gross, I guess, because I think that his intent is not to judge them and that he's trying to have like this 
boundless compassion. And because as a species, we are so mean to each other, Mm -hmm. that compassion comes off as so wildly out of left field that it is baffling to us. And we can only focus on the discomfort of the experience because we're looking almost for a way out because what makes us uncomfortable is that compassion and is that kindness. Does if that yeah yes <laughs> so. no I thought that I'm just gonna let you go because that was all very well said and I think is like a, a beautiful portrait of this uh, in many times ugly movie and I think many of my smaller takeaways really are like informed by that support that like one of the things I took away is you talk a lot about how the movie is about like people seeking connection and one of the very explicit parts of the movie is how Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Alan, specifically, does not see, like, he wants connection so badly, and yet there's this other character, uh, Christine, who's right there, like, asking to be, like, a connection in his life, and he's just not seeing it, which is common in everyone's life. I think one thing I hadn't connected it to is, I talked about how I like the structure of the movie. The structure of the movie implicitly says that exact same thing because these people are all connected but they 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 have a technical connection to each other but they're other than the three sisters meeting for lunch once or twice uh and not even together they aren't actually making use of that connection at all like they are touching base but touching bases but um not really pursuing it and another thing i think i think is interesting towards the honest portrayal of human beings is that the insight we're getting into each of their lives is like the main thing is like a secret or an uh, event in their life that is probably the thing that they would not actually discuss. And that even in like filmmaking, even based on true stories, is the kind of stuff we would want to shy away from. And that isn't to say that these people should be ashamed of these things happening. And it isn't, and I wouldn't call it even prurient or anything like that. It's that's where the honesty comes in. It's like the like for each of them, it's like this is stuff that I don't know that would probably actually be good to talk to someone you're connected to about. But I I, I just think that uh, that is another like really difficult like I difficult balance I think is how it is like their deepest quote like to put it very crudely their deepest darkest secret mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't know and how those differ from each other, but I just. I guess that's where, like, I'm like, man, it is really way too simple to keep coming back into the word honest, but... It, well, and so, and it's funny, because Ebert had a really great quote about how Solange is literally doing, like, a death-defying high-wire act here. Of, <laughs> because I mean, every, uh, literally a single misstep in this screenplay would make the entire movie not work. And when you're looking at, like, his artist statement, or what he considers... The thing that people always come back to is that he's dark or that he's mean or any of this stuff. And that's not the impression that I got in any of the interviews because he is, I think, fundamentally a kind person or at least presents himself as one. And I think there was a really interesting quote in an interview I read where he was like, "It's, it's surprising to me that people always, like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it's surprising to him that people always throw these kind of like, egg word like you know like egg on your face words like oh you're dark oh you're mean oh it's terrible yada yada when like honestly it's kind of these things happen in real life and worse things happen in real life to people all around us all the time and again i think that on top of like trying to address it with compassion having to see even the uh, a kind of honest portrayal of those things 
makes people recoil. Mm. And the other film of his that I have seen um, is called Storytelling. And it kind of has a lot of those same vibes where it's like people trying to use each other to find something or to find solace or to get what they want. And it, it it's it's just he finds a way to like create these characters that you simultaneously want to just like pull away from each other or like punch in the face or do anything and it creates this really weird dichotomy between artist and audience where the the two of us can't really trust each other because he knows what he's trying to say and we can extrapolate and guess at it but at the end of the day like even he is like I don't really trust I don't trust people who don't like my movies because I think that a lot of people who don't like them are being obtuse or not understanding or unwilling to sit in their own discomfort but at the same time he also feels that he can't trust people who do like his movies because it's the kind of thing where it's very easy for especially I think men to look at these kinds of movies and be like I get this guy this guy and me we get each other and yeah like that bitch had it coming and oh like can you really blame that guy like you know there's a lot of stuff that is really easy to misinterpret and that's why this like again this like fucking trapeze art he's doing here to make this work is crazy to me Mm. because I wasn't expecting to like this movie and I definitely wasn't expecting to have a lot of thoughts on it or on him as a director because he's kind of this fringe guy who does like who gets rejected from film festivals and And, and who gets called words like dark and uh, dirty dirty uncomfortable gross and all it, it, if anything like this we already would say like words like dark are overused but like there's a difference between like a director trying to be dark and then this this like i don't know dark i would not use for this movie because it doesn't feel right well i think that he's taking a mirror and reflecting ourselves back at us and i, I saw- which is something people say and usually it's comes off Bullshit. as BS, but like, yeah. I, he actually is able to achieve that. Yes. And I, I read one piece that compared him to Buñuel as a filmmaker. And for a second, I kind of thought that was crazy. And then the more I thought about it, the more I agreed. Because Buñuel also has the same like high wire act of being able to show us uncomfortable situations to paint a picture of malaise that can't be explained. So when you look at a film like Belle du Jour and you have Catherine Deneuve's character like in an unhappy marriage going out and being a prostitute during the day so that she can find something or feel something. Or when you have The Exterminating Angel, which is a film about like rich people who get like magically, I guess, for lack of a better word, trapped in a room together and how like the devolution of their society happens. And I think that we're so often ready to look to the past and call those filmmakers genius and to have hindsight illuminate the point for us. And I think we're just now starting to come up on the time where maybe Todd's Lunds can benefit from that hindsight and where people who are just starting to get into film and looking for interesting and like, I feel like he would probably disagree with me on this word choice, but transgressive films. I think that if we're looking at an American version of that, these are movies that can paint that picture for them and can fill that void when you're looking for an American version of like a Buñuel or a Pasolini or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
it's like this dual idea of, well, I guess there can be value in having a conclusively despicable, immoral person like a child molester as like a main character in your movie. And that's where like the transgression comes in is like for the most part, I would probably think like maybe don't do that for like most directors and most people probably mess it up. But then there can be a way it can provide value. And and then even like on a a very personal level, I just kind of marvel at the the relationships that he builds with other people because obviously movies in like every movie in some way is exploring the relationships between human beings. Like even we talked about Star Wars or Black Christmas or Let It Snow. Mm -hmm. Like there are more, a number of people in those movies. Thus it is about relationships. And I think even like, I don't know, this just kind of dispels for me, certain notions of like how relationships work or how they should be portrayed just because like one of the more low key things like I have. So for example, I have four younger siblings including three sisters three of the main characters in this movie are siblings and just some i find some immense fascination with how those siblings relate with each other where they're like they can like they can have a dinner and talk about whatever's going on in their lives and like like as if no time has passed but at the same time they have no they are completely disconnected from each other in their day-to-day life in many ways and have no idea what's happening in the other person's life. Well, they're also telling each other different versions of the same stories depending on who they're talking to. Right. And then there are weird like jealousies and like disappointments and stuff. And that, I mean, that all strikes a chord with me too. And like, that's just an example of that we've been talking about, like we've talked about basically that in a more expanded fashion about the honesty and all that and connections and all that. But just on a, that is, I mean, that is a way that I can personally relate to it. And it's just, I think, one example of how, I don't know, this movie, I feel like this movie like taught me something about sibling relationships is one thing. But like displays, the, displays relationships between people in ways that I haven't really thought about. Mm-hmm. I don't know, went off on kind of a tangent there. No, that's the whole point of a podcast. It's just a tangent between friends. <laughs> um yeah, I... That was beautiful, Kayla. That's the pull quote. <laughs> That's the pull quote. That's what this is now. Let the Right Films In is a podcast about a, a tangents between friends. A tangent between friends, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think that another interesting thing about this movie to me is that for me, when I'm watching movies, I am very often trying to examine like the gender politics of a movie. And in a lot of 90s movies, they're bad. <laughs> And I, I, I don't I, I don't like every single thing that's here, but I think that again, because he is approaching these characters from a place of compassion, that he weirdly does a really good job handling the female characters in this film, despite the fact that they're just getting shit on constantly. I was gonna bring that up earlier, and I guess like this is this has kind of come up in some of our other d- discussions of our other movies, but like when you talk about how you thought this movie was about men, but not it's just about people, mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating how some of the most honest portrayals of gender are when you're not actually trying to talk about gender but you just have a, just a good grasp on humanity overall yeah when and you, then you just have many like you have different parts of humanity in your movie when you consider all of your characters as human mm-hmm. then you end up with generally decent gender politics in your <laughs> film is i think the the moral of the story if you're smart and for like, that one <laughs> if you're thoughtful and smart and and I think when you're looking at the women in this movie, they 
are portraying the struggles that women have. Like when you're a woman who feels like you have it all, but you're not sexually attracted to your husband and you just can't do it. And you know that something's wrong, but you don't know what it is. Obviously, usually he's not going to be a pedophile, but right. like sometimes... This is the nightmare scenario. Sometimes that happens. Or you honestly break up with somebody because you're just not feeling it and then he kills himself to punish you for that, which is another crazy thing that happens yeah, in this movie. And it is like those kinds of things... Or, like, for instance, the poet sister who admits that, like, she's lying about all of, like, the edgy stuff that she writes about in her poems for mm -hmm. attention, and therefore she feels like a phony. Like, even if she weren't lying about it, like, feeling like a phony when you get a modicum of success is such – like, we all have it, but I think it, in some ways, is a uniquely female experience because we are so, like, kept out of so many spaces and – taught that the ways in which we succeed are you know like being a housewife having a husband doing all these things and like or, or that the opinions or feelings that you have are only because you're a woman and are yes. therefore not valid because of that bias yeah like you're hysterical and you're crazy and you're just like being dramatic all the time and it's so hard to get out of that mindset and like when i look at these three sisters i see that they are falling into the quintessential trap that society sets for us, which is why not just bicker about each other and point fingers at each other instead of realizing that if we worked together, we could create like a better life for ourselves. Or I mean, if you extrapolate that to the whole, a better society for ourselves, but like in this case, a better life for those three sisters. Um, like you have the suburban mom sister and the poet sister going to lunch and talking about how pathetic and sad their other sister is because like she's single yeah and she's 30 and she's a musician which is like no offense half the fucking dudes that i know and nobody's calling them pathetic and sad i'm 29 <laughs> well like you're not a musician no, I so I wasn't <laughs> but um you, I, I played piano for like four years that's true i mean i also played piano. a decade ago i guess tyler is technically a musician because he did create the theme song for our podcast um, so which is more than i have ever done music uh, you created a theme song that is in my email still somewhere. somewhere. I I wouldn't call that creating. A I, I told song, I but. said we were good. I'm like, oh, I should dig that up and use it. And you're like, this. Speaking of tangents between friends. many years ago, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, and so I when I I guess to bring it back to what we were talking about when I look at the gender politics of this movie, I see men in a world in which their role is becoming less clear. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I can understand that it would take time to figure out how to deal with that because when an entire millennia exists and still exists, telling men how they should act and what is their right and what women owe to them, like it, it is a learning process and it is something that takes a willing participant. And so for me, when I see a character like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, yes, I find what he's doing repulsive and disgusting, which are two words that mean the same thing. <laughs> but I also, when examining what I think the thesis of the film is, can understand why he's doing it, which is what I think makes Salons a great filmmaker. Because any, like, for instance, I feel like Tarantino is somebody who's always trying to do that but can't stick the fucking landing and can't make me see what it is that I can't understand, you know? And I I don't really know what else to say because I, I was so 
pleasantly shocked by this movie because I, when you look up Todd Salons uh, just at face value and you're me <laughs> and you're, you like the films that you like, it doesn't look like it's going to be a match. Right. And I also, if you had shown me the plot of this movie and then told me that three weeks later I would literally compare him to Buñuel and Pasolini, that would have been crazy also. So I don't know. Good job, Todd Salons. <laughs> <laughs> like a like very small like tangent off what you said even. Yeah. I do think it's kind of also fat. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Alan, um, like – yeah, he like he is a total creep, and what he does is just like is just bad. And uh, but it almost without like necessarily forgiving him, it also like shows a path for redemption when you're or like maybe not redemption, but just dealing with your emotions and your desires in a actually more healthy way, even after you make some terrible like do some terrible things. Well, and I think too that an important part of that story is that when confronted with a woman who wants him to keep doing that, he can't do it. She calls his bluff entirely. And when confronted with her face-to-face, he can't do it. He can't continue on with the charade that he's built. And I think that that's an important step of realizing, like, "Mm, maybe this sucks. Mm -hmm. And when he meets his neighbor and actually decides to interact with her, I think that an important way in which we learn to understand each other as people is when we have to... Like again, theme of this whole episode when we have to view each other as people because he's looking at his neighbor as like fat, undesirable, yada yada. When in reality, she went through this horribly traumatic experience across the hall from him and has been living with that knowledge alone and dealing with, you know, like the implications of what it is that she's done, which is murder her rapist, which good, you should. <laughs> Um, that's my official stance on that. I don't care. (laughs) And Christine innocent, frankly, Christine, absolutely innocent. And I think that for Alan, when he sees that it is the, the same bafflement that we have at this entire movie because he really likes her. Mm -hmm. And then he's confronted with this horrible thing. And I think has to contend with the fact that, He also has a weird-ass skeleton in his closet. And it kind of ends with them having still, like, keeping that connection and kind of choosing to move forward together. And I think that that's, like, the best outcome for all of us if we've done terrible things or if we've done things we're not proud of. Even if they're not as bad as, like, what Alan's done, we all have things that, like, we have done things that we realize now are wrong and regret. I would be leery of anyone who doesn't have things like that. Yeah, even you if, weirdo. <laughs> just regret, that's, that's just having regrets and realizing yeah. you might have treated, like, you did treat someone poorly. In yeah. The past, like. And I think, I guess, it would be remiss not to comment on the pedophile storyline yeah. in this, in that it's gross and it's yeah. uncomfortable and it deals off screen like there's nothing seen implicitly but like there are little boys who are sexually assaulted by an adult man in this film and it is so strange because you I, i don't know how to describe the feeling of watching it unfold because it's so deeply it causes you to recoil in a way that 
I don't think any of us have to encounter in real life unless you are encountering such a trauma. And when you are like realizing, I guess, the scope of his depravity and the scope of how far he's willing to go to act on this urge, but also trying to understand that he is a man who loves his son in a real and wholesome way and not in like a pedophile way. Like trying to hold those two truths in your head is such a cognitively dissonant experience that it's another one of those things where it's like one incorrect word in the screenplay and one incorrect, I guess, music cue. Or like like the actors, like one incorrect like facial movement yeah. even. It's just like a real masterclass in acting of bringing this character to life, succinctly condemning him, but also still painting him as a very real three-dimensional person. Right. Because it's very easy to take any of the terrible characters in this film and on paper paint them as a 2D caricature and in the hands of a less capable filmmaker, that's what this would be is just like a schlocky exploitative film about gross people. And instead we end up with this very meditative, honestly, strangely funny in places. It's like hilarious sometimes. Deeply strange film. Yeah. I just, I, I guess I would say overall, like I, I think, that you should watch it like it's a a bizarre experience and you probably won't like it while you're watching it but i think that it has a lot you should watch it unless like it will legitimately cause you trauma yeah 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 that's a fair disclaimer um but yeah um i guess do you have any final thoughts on this i feel i think i've hit all of my my bullet points here i guess one small caveat to the end which is another way like he wasn't trying to do this but did uh Maybe one of the most succinct uh, disprovals of the, like, but I'm a father of daughters defenses, you know? Mm -hmm. Just, like, showing, like, sure, you can be a decent person in one aspect of your life, but still a total monster, and one does not belie the other. Yes. Uh, Just, yeah. But uh, other than that, no. uh, Just a crazy... Just come back again to, like, what a unbelievably impressive accomplishment yeah a weird master class in empathy and discomfort at the same time <laughs> like i can't say that i'm super interested in like revisiting storytelling or like catching up on the rest of his filmography just because i don't know how often i can convince myself to sit with that level of discomfort but i think be it ever probably arrogant to say, but I think I understand what he's trying to say as an artist. And I think that I understand that his intentions are good. And I will send Tyler some links to put in the show notes of some of the interviews yes, that please. I read because I feel like those are kind of an important context right. to understanding all of this. And once again, our wrestling with the uh, with authorial intent and how much we want to take it into context. <laughs> Evolves further every day. Who could have thought that that would be the theme of the podcast? And I mean, really, you know, I joked about how this, like, how this movie fits in so well with Christmas, but like, a lot of you will be dealing with family and that you don't deal with often, but you can fall back into your old habits, but you're like, you have this connection, but I just 
maybe more fitting than I gave it credit because it is the human experience and we are having that every day, especially at Christmas. Which is true, yeah. And I think Christmas is also a good exercise in lying to people you love, kind of. So, you know, (laughs) there it is. So, Um, Kayla, we moved out to recommendations. Oh, shit. And uh, I have a feeling you said you'd have one by the time we got to this point. I'm not sure you do. No, no, no. So I am going to be taking the easy, uh, relatively uh, way out on this one. And uh, my recommended movie is just one that uh, features an incredible performance in a small role from the the incredible actor Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, who plays Alan. And uh, this came up because a podcast I listened to, The Rewatchables, just released an episode for this movie. It is The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I think is another, like, I just wildly impressive movie. Uh, but uh, Written by the woman who wrote the novel uh, The Price of Salt, which you may know better as Carol 2015, directed by Todd Haynes. Thank there you. we are. <laughs> Patricia Highsmith, right? Yes. Yes. Uh Philip Seymour Hoffman has, like, I don't know, three, four scenes in this movie. He's not in a lot, but as is often the case, say, with a punch-drug love, uh, he is a bright and shining star. Uh, Tommy, how's the peeping? Tommy, 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 Tommy. Tommy. I was like, oh, he's so good. Oh. And that that is also just a really good movie. So that's my recommendation. It's not super related, although it is about, you know, people and their darker signs and the things that we hide. And I don't know, the relationships and well, whatever. Not whatever. It's a good movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman. So fucking good. Tragic loss for film. Kayla. I have one. I am buying time. I have one. Until We're you're good. Ready. We can cut out all of the awkward sounds. I nope. have one. So my recommendation is another film that I saw kind of around the same time as I saw storytelling when I was going through my film A phase where I was becoming a film A person. <laughs> um, and it is a really strange film starring Anne Hathaway called Rachel Getting Married, which was directed by Jonathan Demme. And this is a movie that when I saw it as a teenager, it took me a minute to get, I think, because it also is a movie that kind of deals in the unpleasant reality of human interaction. But it has a completely different vibe than happiness in that everyone kind of is shitty and unpleasant and did bad things. But in this, this is like an idealized fairy tale world in which they are able to come together and show boundless forgiveness and appreciate their sister's wedding and continue on with their lives for the better. Mm -hmm. And I think that it makes an interesting companion piece to this for all of those reasons. And because it also similarly has like masterclass performances kind of against type from like Anne Hathaway. And um, it just is one of those movies that not everybody will like. And I think that for some people, when they're looking at movies with characters who aren't necessarily likable, that is something for them that they can't overcome. But I personally have never subscribed to the feeling that, the characters we consume have to be people we can relate to or people that we like even because I think that that would make for a very boring artistic landscape. And yeah, Jonathan Demme, Rachel getting married, real weird movie. Um, if you, you, 
may have like I feel like I was going through an Anne Hathaway phase and so I saw it because I was just watching all Anne Hathaway movies I would recommend giving it a rewatch just because it is kind of that same vibe of like interesting character study of like this is a fucked up person who did a fucked up thing but is now trying to atone for that and fit back into a family that she kind that she destroyed and the way in which her family chooses to forgive and empathize with her is I think the same way in which Todd Salons is trying to ask us to empathize with his characters. That's a great connection. It makes me want to watch it. <laughs> I, I do what I can. <laughs> I will say, I think of back, I'm like, maybe I should have gone with one of the Paul Thomas Andrews. There's definitely a Philip Seymour Hoffman that's a better fit with this kind of story. I just like, I really have that on the mind, but. Our greatest sleazeball well, who I miss every day. <laughs> well, Kayla, thank you for joining me on this Christmas Eve. Yeah. I know you had very you, you're missing out on some really oh yeah great family plan. i'm deeply uh, excited to leave here and but, not be here anymore which uh, is not true um <laughs> but coming up next uh we'll be having the year in review series we're calling it now it's yes. going to be coming out throughout january uh planning stalled a little it'll be coming out um yes. we switched to releasing it weekly in january instead of all in a bunch in december last year and it was a choice made out of necessity then and my life was much easier for it so i'm very glad we're doing we're sticking with this plus also there's a lot of good movies coming out in december so uncut gems and little woman are coming out tomorrow for plebs like us cats is out yeah like we gotta give the people a chance to get their december movies on their year end lists really it's irresponsible to release a year in review without including december movies it is so be on the lookout for that Mm -hmm. we are still looking to plan for february and onward so Mm -hmm. if you were looking to become a ten dollar patron and you want to pick a movie for us and make our lives easier so we don't have to think about it you can do that at patreon.com slash ltrfi pod if you just want to talk to us or if you're interested in guesting on the podcast you can always email us your resume no i'm just kidding you can email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com you can shout at us on twitter at ltrfipod and if you are interested in following us individually you can follow tyler uh at tyler hannon on twitter you can follow me at personal maps i use twitter occasionally only because it's bad for my brain and we're both private now so you'll have to request us but i'll probably yeah. approve you Let's so it's an exclusive club mm-hmm. of artiste thoughts and not just me talking about random bullshit yep. <laughs> so yeah artiste. um my finest thoughts, Twitter. That's what. Finest thoughts, Twitter. Oh, uh, very on brand for Christmas. I purchased for Tyler a twenty-four socks and a green room coffee mug. So, in closing, as always, put green room on your best of the decade list, you cowards. Yes, and a twenty-four is a great movie <laughs> studio, and always no. will be. I don't know, Kayla. They've made some choices. Some choices were made. Anyways, send us sweatshirts. Yeah, uh, sweatshirts. I, I will say those socks. I mean, we talk about how expensive A24 merch is. Those are quality socks. They're quality socks. They're also pretty affordable. Mug. The mugs are weirdly the most affordable thing on yeah, the website. Yeah, the socks and the mugs, but high $50, quality. $50 candle, $15 mug. Do I understand it? No. Anyway, somebody at A24, we literally give you free promo on this podcast all the time. Send Unlike me, every other movie podcast. Send me a sweatshirt, please. I just want a sweatshirt more than anything. With the little champion logo on the sleeve. Little champion logo. Thank you. Maybe a little baby Yoda. Oh, that's not. Hashtag a baby Yoda A24 patch. sweatshirts for LTRFI. As always. 
Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever Mm. it is that you celebrate. I'm pretty sure this is coming out ideally the 27th or the 28th. So it'll be close enough for you to still be in the Christmas spirit. Um, We're looking forward to a full year of podcasting next year. And thank you to everybody who has donated to our Patreon. You guys rule. We love you. Thank you to anyone who listens to this. Yeah, thank you. Whenever someone tells me, oh, I listened to the last episode, what? Uh, shout out to my mom <laughs> who listens you, to the podcast more than my own fiance. To us? <laughs> um, mm. You guys are great. I said um a lot. <laughs> That's it. Uh, yeah. We're very appreciative of everything ever. Yeah. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We'll see you soon. May your year be full of baby Yoda. Also unwrapped pre-gift. Socks! <laughs> oh my god, these are amazing. Thank you. I, I don't know. There's just The so... Last Jedi was a better movie for Finn. That's all I'm saying. The Last Jedi was a better movie. Sorry, John Boyega. I love you. In general. All of you are cursed for um, not liking the really in-depth review that I wrote of the Brothers Bloom, but liking my one-sentence meme review of Knives Out. You're so not you all of you are banned. Anyway, Tyler, continue. <laughs> And I'll, I'm gonna cut out, cut out some of the more like. Well, don't tell them that. I'm Nothing gonna cut happened. Too. Nothing happened. Why am I giving myself more stuff to cut out? <laughs> I love when Tyler gives himself more oh, stuff to cut out. Oh my god. <laughs>